0: So, good morning, everyone. Um, so, I recently uh, went to. Okay, great, thank you. A, uh, there's a tour in the Bay Area of Buddhist relics. Uh, I'm sure there's some people who have gone to that tour. If not, um, you can find out about it. I I saw it when it was in Berkeley last week. I think this weekend in San Francisco. I believe it's going back to the East Bay. All you'd have to do is Google Buddhist relics, you know, San Francisco or Berkeley, and you could find it. So for those of you who aren't familiar, relics, um, maybe not so much here in in our scene, but certainly traditionally in Buddhism, uh, relics are kind of a big deal where some great master or teacher dies and is cremated and then they take the ashes or perhaps there's some bits of bone that weren't completely burned or sometimes also it leaves behind these little small little spheres that look like little pearls I don't know what that is and so they'll gather all that up and collect it and put it in perhaps a stupa that is then for some people it's it's really an object of worship but I think, for, at least for me, it's more just inspirational. Certainly, a great, it brings up a great sense of gratitude and appreciation and inspiration, and also quite a, just honoring these great masters and what they've taught and passed down. So, um, um, you know, just going back to the time of the Buddha. Uh, relics have played a big part in traditionally in the history of Buddhism. So um, there's these relics going on tour and so when I went with my wife last week and when you come come in the room they had, uh, if you wanted you could go to where someone was sitting up above and you could kneel below and they had this, um, it was shaped like a pyramid, it was wooden, I don't know what, maybe it had some of the relics in it and um, they put it on your head and say a prayer and then you could bow and everything. So I went there, got the wooden thing on my head and you know they um, got the prayer and it was really just sweet. And then you could go um, get in the line and before you even got to where the relics were, And you didn't have to do any of this, but um, I just loved it. And you could, uh, you know, you could ritual bathing the Buddha. They had a little Buddha statue and you could pour water. And they had a sheet if you wanted to. You could say some of the prayers. Um, And so um, then you go through and you come to the first relic. And what the relics were, they're little... Small glass bowls, just a few inches, two or three inches. And in there is a little bit of some kind of material. Maybe it's ash or bone or just some kind of material. It wasn't clear. Just little, little tiny bits in there. So you come to the first one and there's the bowl and there's a sign. Shakyamuni Buddha. (laughs) Um, Now I have to say that we don't actually know if it's the real actual historical Buddha's ashes right in that thing it's it, 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 the history is so obscure and remote we don't it's just not known but what was interesting is it didn't matter for all practical purposes in any way that did matter that's the Buddha uh, and then went through the final group and now it's getting more to cont- more closer to contemporary times. So we pretty much know those are the actual ashes. And there was a few names because it was all Tibetans that I didn't recognize. But uh, Lama Yeshe was in there. Some of you will know Lama Yeshe. He was cremated at Vajrapani, which is in Santa Cruz mountains here. You know, he died, what was it, 15, 20 years ago, something like that. So, um, And he was just, this, you see all his pictures, he was just loving, sweet, kind, just this beautiful teacher. So he was there. So that was the, the show. I encourage any of you to go if you have any interest at all in, in just seeing there. Well, there were two things that struck me about going there. The first was people were coming there from all different traditions. First of all, all different Buddhist traditions and you could tell because of Uh, You know, not everybody is into bowing, but a lot of people there were bowing, and all the different ways that they bowed. Like the Tibetan practitioners were, you know, doing the full prostrations. Um, People doing just little bows, or all different. And then even some ways I hadn't seen. Um, There was one man; he he was kneeling, and when he would go down, he would tumble his arms like this as he went down. And then he was down; he would raise his hands. I think I know the raising the hand is, is. symbolic of lifting the feet of the Buddha. But I didn't recognize this. So there he was from whatever his tradition was, doing his thing. And so everybody was just showing up, just bringing fully just who they were, how they practiced their beliefs, uh, their practices, their points of view. And it didn't matter. We were just all there together, just inspired by the message of these great masters. There were even people there. Uh, one One man had this three dimensional it was shaped like a crystal, and all each of the sides uh was a crystal, and then there was copper wire wrapped around it, and it was all held together by the copper wire and then he had something another wire, maybe like the antenna, i guess where you pick up the vibes from or something, and you know he was holding it out over the <laughs> relics, and so you know he's doing his thing you know and 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 somebody else had a crystal, it was like a pendulum, he was there swinging it over the relics. And so it was great. And, <laughs> and all of my judging mind about who's right or wrong, it just was gone. It was just so much love. And that's one thing that really struck me of that commonality that we were all there, You know, everybody coming for the inspiration, for the appreciation of the relics and, and to see what they could bring of themselves and also what they could take away of value. So, and there were people sitting around meditating and they also had this um, kind of beautiful meditative music playing. It was just great. So that was one thing that struck me very powerfully. And the second thing was, as I mentioned earlier, how alive it brought a sense of all these teachers. You just felt like they were th- there. you know. And uh, I really appreciated that. And so I've been reflecting on this uh, it just brought up a lot of gratitude for me, and so you know we look back at this history of Buddhism, which is now more than twenty five hundred years. We always say it's twenty five is getting maybe closer to twenty six hundred actually isn't it? if you look at the Buddhist calendar, Hugh, do you know the the calendar? yeah, I don't know, but anyway, this unbroken chain of teachings of these of these men and women, both great masters and teachers who have um, heard the teachings, practiced the Dharma, come for, them, for themselves to some profound deep realization or awakening or liberation or freedom, whatever word you want to use, and have kept that alive and then passed it on down to the next generation right? in an unbroken chain. And so here we are today. If you look at all the different traditions and schools of Buddhism and groups, you know, the practices vary tremendously among them. The belief systems are different. They all have different cosmologies, often different views about what enlightenment is. They use different language. But underneath all of that, if you step out of the belief system, Systems. And I'm not saying we have to do that or even necessarily perhaps we can't completely step out of our belief systems. That's alright. That's not my point. But underneath all of that, if you're actually looking at the, 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 the fundamental message and, and the fundamental path and practice, there's a, there's, it's a very simple and there's a commonality there that there, all of these great masters were pointing to. And what they were asking us to do was, first, live a life based on some kind of moral principles, we use the word sila. So living, or or at least starting to take on the practice of trying to live more, we're not going to be perfect about it, in a way that creates more well-being and happiness for ourselves and others and less suffering for ourselves and others. So it's non-harming, non-stealing, you know the five precepts we talk about. Not abusing our sexuality. We all know that sexuality can cause a lot of harm and suffering, and for many of us, probably has. Being more wise and careful with that, with our speech, not abusing intoxicants, those kind of uh, creating that safe container that protects ourselves and others. And then a second piece is bringing in some kind of um, uh, wisdom practices. So, learning how to quiet the mind down. That's what we're doing here in our Vipassana practice learning to to become a little more quiet and then uh, cultivating that clear seeing, mindfulness and clear comprehension. So we start to um, drop below the surface appearance of things and to see more clearly and to to wake up more. And there's a lot we could say about what that means, but I'm sure you've all heard that talked about many times. So this sila, this morality, this wisdom, and then some kind of practices that open the heart of, of love and compassion. That's the message, learning to quiet our minds, open our hearts. That's what all these great masters were talking about. right? That's the way to more happiness, more well-being, that freedom, whatever words you like to use. That's the message they were all pointing to. Okay? So now here we are today, we are the living link in that unbroken chain. It's not somebody else out there, it's us. right? At the time of the Buddha, I often reflect on this. You know, there's all these stories of him giving talks, many different circumstances. It was as real as this moment is right now, right? Feel how real this is. We're actually here in a room. It's not something way off, you know, in remote history. There was a man sitting here, people came, all these things, you know, happened or. Many of them happened. Right? It was as real as this. I think for many people, um, the idea of enlightenment can feel very far away. That word enlightenment somehow has a, for some people, it has a connotation of something, you know, way far away from me. Whatever enlightenment is, I mean, that's, I'm not even close in this lifetime to that. But I would like to suggest that there's another way we can think about that. We don't have to set up some um, you know, unattainable ideal view of some state that we're going to reach. I think we can actually look into our lives right now. And I would like to suggest that there are some people here I know, but I think most people here I don't know, But I feel confident to say this is true for every single person in this room. If it's not true, come talk to me later. We can talk about it. I'll bet every one of us can look to, to some aspect in our lives, maybe it's one thing, where if we look back in the past, it might have been an area where we really suffered around it a lot. We really got caught a lot. We didn't have much freedom around it. And then can look now and say, you know, I'm a lot freer around that area than I used to be. I may not be completely, I may not be a Buddha yet, but you know what, I've reached a lot more freedom around that. A lot less suffering around that, a lot more wisdom in that area. Now part of it may be just if we live long enough, hopefully, and do nothing else, hopefully we get some wisdom, right, just from getting older, I'd like to think. (laughs) But also, I mean, we're all, you know, we're not out right now. We're here at a Dharma Center, right? We're not whatever, you know, you could have done anything this morning. You came here to practice meditation. You know, it's not always easy, right? If you were having a real pleasant, blissful meditation, great, fine, that's nice. If you were sitting here struggling, um, you know, the body's hurting or you're restless or sleepy, or the mind's just churning over and over with something that you're going on in your life that you can't let go of and now you don't even have any distraction because you have to sit here with your eyes closed quietly with it just you know grinding away in you right it's not easy right this isn't easy work but you came here to do this and to reflect on these great masters and to hear the dharma and to be in community right That's something every single one of us has done. We've been drawn to practices uh, to try and live in a way that's heading us in the same direction that these great masters went. We're intimately connected in the same path in the same way of the masters. It's not something beyond us. We're doing it here. We're doing that practice. And I hope we can all bring some appreciation for ourselves for that. And to recognize the places where we have learn to live more skillfully and have come to some wisdom. Not as something way, way, way off in the future, but that we can actually look at now. It doesn't mean we're going to stop trying and stop moving forward in a positive, wholesome direction. We are all students of the previous generation and we're all elders. For the next generation, every one of us—we're the elders for the next generation. So it's for us to to keep the practice alive, take the inspiration and message of these great masters, and then apply it in our lives in the best way we can. And so we don't want to create a struggle or a suffering about it. You know, you don't want to create it like, yeah, I've got to get. You know, if, if we turn the path into, I've got to get. All of a sudden, we've created, we've we've turned this, the Dharma into another object of clinging and grasping, right? So it's become a corruption of the of the teaching. So we want to be careful for that. And all of us will probably, from some time or other, many of us at least, will fall into that trap. It's it happens. You know, it's not the worst thing if it happens. You just you know suffer a little bit. That's all. And then someone will say or do something to snap us out of. Snap us out of. Uh, I'm um, Some of you know I'm working on a book on the topic of Samadhi. And I, um, just a few weeks ago, I had two um, Buddhist publishers have said they're really interested, in Wisdom Publications and Shambhala. So, wow, that's really great, these publishers. And when they both happened to call within a few days, I just felt so happy. And then I went to my wife. I got... She's just so good at straightening me out when I get covered. I went to my wife and I said to her how embarrassed I felt that I was happy because one of the things that gets talked about a lot is what's called the worldly dharmas, which is basically saying, you know, we're led around by, like, with a ring in our nose where if something pleasant happens, we're happy. And when something unpleasant happens, we're miserable. And we set our whole lives up trying to um arrange so we get as much of the good stuff as possible so we can be more happy and as less the whole class and range of experiences we don't want to have because we're going to be unhappy it's called the worldly dharmas we're just at the effect of the world so here i am you know like how would i have felt if the publisher had called and said you know i don't know um well mr shankman thank you for submitting your book proposal but you know, not only were you not interested, but the idea that you thought you would even send this garbage in is—you know—how would I have felt? Well, let's be honest about it. It would have, would have felt pretty bad. And they call up and say, "Wow, we're quite interested." You know, blah, blah, blah. You, know you feel good. So I felt embarrassed. I went there. I said, "You know, I've been practicing the Dharma all these years. Um, I'm a Dharma teacher. All it takes is this to happen." And I'm happy. I'm just it's just the worldly dharmas. I'm just caught. I feel so embarrassed. And my wife said, Richard, you know, when night she just said it, she just said, You know, when good things happen, human beings feel happy. Don't make a problem. (laughs) And it was like, Oh, okay, yeah. It's like it's true we don't want to take it get too caught up and take it seriously, but it's like it's true. It's just part of being a human being. And I don't think the teachings are asking us to stop being human beings, right? right? We're just asked to... We're not throwing out our humanness, but we're also trying to bring a sense of freedom around how to work with whatever experiences do come our way, right? We're just adding in some extra tools and wisdom uh, to use. So, you know, there's many ways we're going to get caught. You know, a hundred times, a thousand times. Right? until we're until we're get our names up on that when we're in a bowl with
1: <laughs> you know <laughs>
0: we're going to get caught a thousand times it's all right but we can look at you know what we have and bring some appreciation one of the things uh that I've heard sometimes is that people think that you know I know people who've been practicing for a lot of years and I've heard them like, you know, you interview when you're on retreats and just saying, you know, I just feel like I I haven't made any progress and and they have this idea that, you know, if you really had some deep opening you would I'm not sure, I think go into some kind of meditative state, transcendent state, and you're just kinda stay there all the time. But it's not like that, right? Even those meditative states are conditional, right? They come and they go. What we're doing on a deeper level is um, working on the way our the habitual conditioning of our mind, the habitual patterns of our mind. And you can't see your own conditioning. You could try to look for it, can you? No. It's only visible indirectly. You can get to it indirectly. When you bump up against some experience or some situation, then we see how the mind reacts. Right? And that's the place you can look to yourself to look back and say, "Wow, there's been some shifts in the conditioning or the habits, habit patterns of mind." That's the real fruit of practice. I don't want to diminish the meditative states; it's that they're a big deal. Right? We don't want to diminish them, but we don't want to make them more than they are either. On a deeper level, it's more about our conditioning. Every one of us here. Every single one of us right, have, can see areas where the practice is working, whatever practice means for you. So I hope you'll bring some real appreciation for yourself and you know, perhaps a sense of inspiration. I came away from the relics and reflecting on these topics, topics with a great sense of inspiration, and it's really helped um, be in my own practice. And to bring some gratitude uh, also... So I think I'll just stop there, and we have a few minutes if anyone, if you have any comments or anything you want to add or say from what we were talking about, that's fine. But also, if any questions around, um, I, I usually at the beginning, uh, before the talk, ask if anybody have any questions around practice, and I just forgot to do that. So if you had any questions on anything, it's fine. Then I'll, we can pass this microphone around if anybody does. <coughs> Oh, thanks, Hugh. And if not, that's fine. But maybe we'll just sit for a moment and let it let it cook for a minute or two.
1: I have a just a minor, irrelevant question. Yeah, yeah. Um, Were there any uh, women in the? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Were there any women in the relics? No Mahapachapati or
0: right. No women in the relics except I will say um there was one section where, where where some of the names were a little not as remote in history and I and they were Tibetan names I didn't recognize, so it's possible. But um I didn't recognize any women's names. But I and I but I do want to say that um um if you and this would be true certainly for the Tibetans. Um, there's a, a list of 80, 84 people who were called Mahasiddhas, tremendously respected realized masters. They came out of a period in India where there was a, a Buddhist tantric practice, and they're very, very influential in Tibetan Buddhism. And if you look in that list, uh, there are a number of uh, yoginis, great women masters in there who taught the man and everything. So there certainly were plenty around that could have been included. They didn't happen to be in here.
1: I can't help making the comment that uh, I appreciate Richard bringing up in the beginning of his talk How important not just this sitting practice is, but also the practice of sila and the practice of generosity. How um, not only generosity, but loving kindness. All of the practices that incline and open the heart. Um, In fact, I believe the Buddha called them the three pillars. And I like to think of it as like a three-legged stool. You can't possibly really do this practice without doing all three. All three are necessary.
2: Hi, I'm Sue. This morning I opened up my emails and um, there was one about the cracked pot I don't know if anybody's heard that story about an Indian woman who walked um, to the took her um, water uh, what are they call pots and she had one on each shoulder and on the way um, down on the way back by the time she got back one of the cracks had a uh, crack in it, so it was only half full. And so when she got back, she only had a pot and a half of water, and the pot spoke to her after a couple of years and apologized for being not perfect. And the uh, woman said, well, did you notice that on your side of the walk, there's flowers growing? Um, For this two years, you've been watering the flowers that I've used to put on my table. And so I guess I heard in the beginning of your talk um, to accept people as they are. And it, it sort of amazes me how messages, when they come, they come in from more than one source. And I guess I'm not sure what that's telling me or you.
1: Richard, whenever I listen to you, I always uh, come away with a, a gem about how, uh, how you apply the sila and openness and um, some of these <coughs> gentle practices we have to a real experience that's just happened to you. It's like you bring to us how real you are in your own life. Um, this summer, for example, you talked about being on vacation with your wife in Mexico and uh, getting caught in a, in a tide that wouldn't let you easily get back to shore and how you um, and your wife together figured out that if you rest when it's pulling you um, I guess out so you just hold your place and then paddle like heck when it's you know pushing the other way and make the most of the, the, the tide going the other way that stayed with me. Um, I've recently gotten a diagnosis of ALS and uh, have from time to time thought of what you're saying. You know, make the most when the tide is good because I have good days and some days are not so good. And uh, and also to, um, like this woman was talking about the crackpot, to realize all the blessings and benefits that come to me as a result of this diagnosis. How I'm more aware of the people and the faces, um, and what's going on around me, and, um, you know, to be grateful for the blessings that have come. So um, thanks so much for being our teacher, and uh, I, I, I keep these gems yeah. that you have, for example, about how excited you got about the relics, That's a human thing, and how we want these experiences. Thanks. Yeah,
0: I appreciate that. And also, just to say, um, "I don't want to get into your personal thing too much or anything, but um, just as you share just that little bit, you know, we give these teachings, and um, you know and you know, one of the foundational teachings is old age, sickness, and death, like we know, we're all going to get old, we're all going to get sick, every single one of us, and we're all going to die, right? And it's taught over and over again, and yet. It's and I reflect on it a lot and yet, you know, I, I mean you sound like you're working with it and, and I know and, and probably fine. And also just acknowledge that, you know, it for all of us, you know, it's when we're faced with these things, it's 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 also a big thing and um it's a big teacher. And so I appreciate you just sharing about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um so we're get, we have to end within five minutes so let's just do the closing and then if anybody you know I, I can stick around a little bit if, if, if you got something that didn't get a chance to if we didn't have enough time in the group or whatever but what I would like for us to do to end um, well I would just invite you first of all um, I know what can happen sometimes when there's a discussion um, or talk that sometimes the Awareness goes out, kind of into the group, and we're, you know, it's out into the talk. And uh, whether we like the talk or don't like it, but you know, it can pull us out of ourselves. And so, if that's happened, uh, which is common, I would just invite you to then bring your awareness back, you know, connecting back inside, into the body, into the heart and the mind, and just bring your mindfulness inside to um, just to connect with your experience and if you need to shift your posture or something we're going to just do a very short ending but you know you don't have to be in a fancy position but you know to be as comfortable as your body would allow and then connecting in to the heart and the mind and the body and i would invite you to notice not only what your experience is in this moment and there may be some things up for you or there may not be that much going on, but also to pay attention to how are you holding that experience or what's the relationship you're having now with that experience, with your experience? and see if there can be a sense of um, allowing. Just allowing ourselves to be and the unfolding of our being just moment to moment now. Just that act of great um, self acceptance is a tremendous act of kindness for ourselves. You know, so often we get in these struggles with ourselves or our experience, or we're really kind of in an adversarial relationship with ourselves sometimes. So, to see if we can start to shift that and holding ourselves just as we are with, with just tremendous uh, love and compassion and care. And also, um, you know, if there is some, in some way that you're, you're not able to bring that acceptance to yourself, then, then bring some acceptance for that place in yourself. And then I would invite you to reflect that um, we have all used our time wisely together this morning, coming to to meditate and to reflect about these great teachers and what their message and teaching for us is and how we apply it in our lives. And to reflect on um you know, some appreciation for ourselves. And perhaps even some gratitude, not just for others, but actually gratitude for towards ourselves. And so we've all used our time wisely this morning. And any time we do so, it's of great benefit to ourselves. But also to great benefit to others, to those around us. In fact, it's not possible, it's literally not possible to practice for ourselves alone. That anytime, uh, you know, we open our own hearts, quiet our own minds, it cannot help but be of benefit to others too. And we can make that more conscious, where we can consciously offer up, uh, uh, or dedicate our practice for the benefit of others as well as ourselves. And so we can reflect that if there's been any goodness or any merit uh, that's been generated or, or obtained by our time together this morning, let us offer it up, may it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. Wishing may all beings uh, be happy and peaceful, and wishing may all beings come to an end of suffering. So, thank you all very much. I hope you have a good morning.